0: This is Daniel 11 13. Antiochus the third, the great. Does, it, does the name Antiochus ring a bell to you in history? This is not that Antiochus, not yet. If you're thinking of Antiochus Epimenes, who was the madman in the Maccabees stories, that's Antiochus IV. This is not him yet. This Antiochus was a pretty good leader, okay? So. The king of the north, that's this Antiochus, will again raise an army which will be greater than the first army. And after some years, he will keep coming with a great army and many supplies. This is a huge undertaking. In those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. Violent men from your own people will lift themselves up in fulfillment of this vision. But they will fail. Who are your own people, O Daniel? Israelites. Israelites. The Jews would begin to join against some of the nations in some of these attacks. And they would send thousands of men into battle in some of these battles now. So we're beginning to see that the Jews have unwisely chosen to take sides. Why do I say unwisely? Well, and if your front yard is the battleground and it keeps changing sides, is it wise to take sides? But you, you've got young men who are often belligerent who say, you know, if we join them, they'll win and that'll end everything. Except that's not going to end everything. So in those times, oh, I, 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 this now, the, this king of the south, we're now up to Ptolemy V. What What title do you think the Ptolemies all had in Egypt? Pharaoh. And they all have statues where they're made to look like a pharaoh. Also, with the pharaoh's long beard and all of that. You know, a pharaoh always has a beard in, in a statue, even if she's a woman. You can always tell a pharaoh because of the quality of that beard, which usually is a piece of wood, actually, overlaid with... You know, silver or something, but Ptolemy—he doesn't look much like a pharaoh, does he? He, I, to me, he looks like somebody named Glenn or Bob or something. It's that's Ptolemy the fifth, George. But um, so that a rebellion of Jews though joined against Ptolemy the fifth, and they were crushed by uh, an Egyptian general um, named Scopus in, in 200 BC. And now that Egyptian, that name Scopus doesn't sound too Egyptian, does it? Scopus, the one who sees? What, what nationality? Where do you think he got trained? Greece. Rome. Not Greece. Rome. Rome. Suddenly something's happening in the world. Uh, Rome is beginning to extend itself. Now in the 200s, we're still in the days of the Roman Republic. Where Rome doesn't have an emperor, it has three consuls. They're, they're, they're three guys who work together to run everything smoothly. So that if one of them dies, does the government collapse? No, you bring in a new, cons- a new consul, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. Just remind you of anything really close to home? How many pastors do we have? Three. three. And if one retires, what do we do? Does the church collapse? We call another one in. You know, it, not that we're doing that on purpose. We could have four pastors. Or we could have two. But and for most of my ministry, we had two. But um, that's all right. The king of the north will come and build siege works and capture a fortified city. Um, Now we're coming back to what you were talking about, Dan. The forces of the south will not stand, not even its best troops, because they will have no strength to stand. And we think that this is a reference to the Battle of Sidon, way up in the northwest, uh, north of the pass. Looking at Megiddo from, let's just say we're looking at it from the south. okay? To your left would be Mount Carmel, and the Carmel Range that extends out into the ocean. You can't get around that way. To your right would be the Galilean highlands and the, building up to the, to, the, to the cauldron of the Sea of Galilee. And the way through is through this valley called the Jezreel Valley. And the, the, the one stronghold that overlooks it where the, the, the forces would run out. What do they call that? Sallying forth? I know, poor Sally, I don't know what. Anyway, um, that, that's Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo. And, of course, what does, uh, what does the Bible give that hill? The, the, the Aramaic word for hill is har or ar? Armageddon. Armageddon, yeah, that's where it gets its name. And those 39 layers you were talking about, Dan, those are, none of those is a natural disaster. That's a defeat, a military defeat. And then they had to rebuild the city on top. So they, I've heard it said that Megiddo is the site of more battles than any other piece of real estate on earth. I, I think I believe that. Yeah. I mean, the Bible doesn't say that, but I think it's probably accurate. This happens north of that. Um, on, on our map here, um, I have the, words, the word Sea of Galilee, and you see that bump sticking out on the left out into the ocean there in the Mediterranean Sea? The hill of Megiddo is kind of between that and Nazareth. Um, as you see on the map if you climb up now northward from there to Tyre and then up way up as far as Sidon that's where th- verse 15 seems to be talking about this, uh, this attack on Sidon and I wanted to show you this photograph I, I don't want to take up too much time but on the right are uh, soldiers that's 1941 those are Australian Anzac soldiers you can kind of tell the Australians always have that slouch hat The cowboy hat with the floppy sides. Now, World War II, right? 1941. Who do you think the Australians defeated at Sidon in Palestine? The French. Because France had divided up into two. The Free French fighting on the side of the Allies. And Vichy France, who sided with Germany. And so the Australians fought the French in Sidon in 1940. Isn't that weird? But it's one of those things that just happened in the war. Um, but that tower is an ancient, it might be a crusader tower, but it's an ancient tower. But it's also at this same place, Sidon. I, I, I have that in my, in my little bank of photographs. I wanted to show that to you. So let's go on with the. Uh, our chapter here. The one who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will stand in his way. He will stand in the beautiful land, and it will be completely in his power. I keep thinking Antiochus here, looks like one of my professors from college. Can't think of which one. Um, he will be determined to come with the power of his entire kingdom, and to bring a treaty with him, which he will enforce. He will give his daughter To the king of the south in marriage in order to destroy the southern kingdom. But his plan will not succeed or turn out to his advantage. The word daughter in the translation is actually the daughter of women in in Hebrew. Like son of man, daughter of women. Um, Probably in context in Hebrew it meant the, the most noble of women. She was the best of women. He wanted her to go. And so, therefore, if you're a king and you have daughters, what are you going to use them for? Spies. No, not spies. Yes. Yeah, to make treaties. You're gonna, I'm going to marry you off and we're going to have an alliance, right? But then, the first thing you said, Beth, spies. Like this one was great. This one, well, the intention was that she would become a spy. But she was trained as a daughter of women. A true daughter of a king would go and be an excellent wife to a king. What does she do? Her name is Cleopatra I. And rather than be her father's daughter, she becomes her husband's wife. Isn't that kind of what the Lord said in Genesis chapter 2? For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and go and cleave unto his wife. Forgive the King James, but yeah, so. Cleopatra was given to in marriage to Ptolemy V in 194 BC, and nothing her dad had wanted her to do happened. She was a good wife to her husband. And what but what did she just do? She just became the queen of Egypt. You know, the pharaoh's wife. So what does she want to have happen? She wants her sons to grow up and become pharaohs. So that's, and that's what she does. And all of her female descendants will be named Cleopatra. 18, he will focus his attack on the coastlands and capture many. I got to... Come back and talk about coastlands in a minute. However, a commander will put an end to his insolence. Moreover, he will make him pay for his insolence. This commander um, was a guy named Scipio Asiaticus. He had a brother named Scipio Africanus, famous for battles of his own. And these guys are Romans. So more and more you have Romans coming in here, winning victories and kind of tasting the the delight and the magnificence of the Levant, of the, of the East. You know, Rome is a mess and full of commanders who want, you know, to be in charge of everything. Then they come out East and they're the big cheese in an even bigger country. So why not set up shop over here? You know, the, that, these wars just drew in expert commanders. And all of a sudden, those guys looked around and said, wouldn't it be cool if I were Pharaoh? Or I were king of Syria or something, and that's what starts to happen. Then the king of the north will turn his face toward the fortresses of his land. So let's reinforce our country. He will stumble and fall and not be found. Antiochus III, the guy who looked like my college professor, he died plundering the temple of Bel in a city in Persia called Elimaeus, um, in about 187 bc i don't know if he had a stroke or if a statue fell on him or i don't know what happened to him but he went into this pagan temple was, clean, was 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 stealing stuff and died so he just kind of vanishes verse 20 some commentators think that verse 20 is the turning point to now we're only talking about the antichrist in the distant future but i think we have a few more verses to go uh, uh, by the way, I, I, Antiochus III's son is named Seleucus IV. He ruled for about 10 years. He marries his own sister, pretty common in these families. Um, but then he gets assassinated by one of his own, of his own cabinet ministers, and repla- a guy named Heliodorus. He's replaced by his own five-year-old son, Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV is going to be Antiochus Epimenes, the one that you may have heard of. But he's five when he ascended the throne. A despicable person will arise in his place. I kind of still think this is this Antiochus who rises up in place of his dad. But they will not confer the royal majesty upon him. He does do a bunch of assassinations to gain his status. He will come when the kingdom is at ease and sees it through smooth, slippery talk. Does he ever sound like a weasel? Um, I had a, a friend in my youth that I referred to as the weasel. He was one of my best friends, and I did not trust him at all because of his smooth, slippery talk. I, I always felt like I had a wolf by the ears when I was around him. You just don't let go, you know. Um, this is him, by the way, Antiochus Epiphanes, 175 to 164 B.C., um, uh, can you see uh, around the, 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 the round curve of the bottom of his nose and up along the bridge? Does it look like it's been broken off and glued back on? Yes. That's because it has. As far as I've been able to find, there is no intact portrait, statue sculpture of this man in the world. Um, usually the nose is just gone to deface the statue. And if you were a Jew and had known what Antiochus Epiphanes did, wouldn't you break his nose, at least on the statue as well? Um, They they happened to find this nose and put it back on, but usually it's just completely gone. A powerful force will be over... I have to correct a a mistake I made earlier. I think that I once told this class back in our Genesis days, that it was Napoleon Bonaparte's men who shot the Sphinx's nose off with a cannon? I believe that's not true. Um, I now think, based on sketches, Napoleon's own men made, before Napoleon got there with the cannons, the nose was already missing. And that it maybe had been missing for a long time before then. So I apologize for that. I was misled by incorrectly written history. So... Verse 22, a powerful force will be overpowered by him and broken together with a leader of the covenant. Who might be a leader of the covenant? I don't know if we're there yet but at least a high priest of the Jews? Some, somebody like that? Somebody important? After an alliance is made with the leader of the covenant, the despicable person will act deceitfully. Remember, he's a what did I say he was? He's a, weasel. a weasel. He's uh, smooth, slippery talk. Yeah, he's a weasel. Um, the despicable person will act deceitfully. He will rise up and become powerful with a small nation. So I'm going to make other alliances here and there. He will come to the richest parts of the province when it is at, when it is at ease. And he will do what his fathers and his fathers' fathers did not do. He will distribute plunder and property to them. He will come up with plans against strongholds, but only for a time. Antiochus, instead of doing what his forefathers had done, which is when I, when I, when I, when I win a victory, I keep all the riches. What does Antiochus do? He gives it away. He makes allies. That's a pretty smart thing to do. If I'm going to start making underhanded deals with this country and that country and whatever else, and I start giving them part, some of the spoils, they're going to be loyal to me and this is going to come in handy later on. Slippery, smooth, slippery talk by this weasel. He will awaken his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. Why do you want to attack Egypt? Just, I I don't know. If, you're, if any of you has ever... King or Queen of Syria. Uh, don't attack Egypt. Okay. The king of the south will stir himself up for battle with a very great and powerful army, but he will not succeed because schemes will be plotted against him. So this is Antiochus the versus Ptolemy now the sixth. Um, and actually, there are no details in history about this, which I think is why some commentators think we're already projecting into the future. But just because I don't know about this one battle, does it mean this one battle never happened? You know, it it, it certainly could have. Um, But also there are some who think that now we're in the time of the Maccabees. First Maccabees covers this history in a different way, as does Josephus covers this history his own way. But just because the book of Maccabees doesn't mention a battle doesn't mean the battle didn't happen. And remember that the Maccab- uh, uh, Daniel, rather, the book of Daniel is concerned with what Antiochus IV did. You know, he set up the abomination and so forth. The book of First Maccabees is concerned with the people who opposed Antiochus IV, not what his accomplishments were. So it's, you see that that's a different point of view? You know, how many of you know all kinds of things about the accomplishments? of Saddam Hussein. You know, because that's not our point of view, right? But I'm sure there were some. He was attempting to rebuild Babylon and other things like that. Um, so, okay, move on. Those who eat his special royal food will try to break him. Um, who are people who eat his special royal food? His... Sure, his family and his intimate friends. If a king invites you to his table, the king might expect you to be loyal to him, right? Come and have my good food. I want you to be loyal to me. And these guys were, oh, they, well, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? There are weasels too, yeah. And his army will be swept away. So uh, special obligations. But you know, uh. When the, when the king invites you to his special table, he may anticipate loyalty from you. Can we apply that to the Lord's Supper? The king invites us to his feast? We should celebrate that and be devoted to Christ. This is what he has given to us, the greatest gift. Much greater than an ordinary king giving, you know, ooh, squid or whatever, you know, to the people who sit at the table. That This is Christ's own body and blood. That we have, we should take it very seriously, um, and and give him honor and glory for that. Well, back to ch- verse twenty-seven. <clears throat> the two kings whose hearts are bent to evil will sit at one table and lie to each other, but this scheming will not succeed because the end is still set for an appointed time. So, yeah, lying and lying the king of the north, will return to his land with a lot of captured possessions and with his heart set against the holy covenant, he will take action and then return to his own land. So, let me just comment about this from a theological standpoint. Other nations that attacked Israel at different times were the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, right? But God either permitted that or even commanded that that was going to happen, correct? Yeah. As a scourge to his people, the, th- the whole debacle in Egypt eventually, um, let's get you out of there and this and, and, and so forth. But what, what, what the angel is telling Daniel is, you know, when Syria does this to you, Are they doing it with God's blessing and command? No. So for Assyria, Babylon, Persia to attack Israel, that's doing God's will. But for ordinary Syria to do it, they're opposing God, not doing his will. They've now put themselves at odds with God himself. Um, And what's going to happen is the temple is going to be profaned and plundered. So that the stuff's going to be taken out. They're going to, Antiochus is going to end up setting up a pagan altar in the temple of, of Jerusalem. Um, and many of God's people are going to be killed. Uh, verse 29, at an appointed time, he will return and come into the south again. But this later invasion will not turn out like the first invasion. Again and again, Daniel getting strangely specific news. I almost said tidings. Um, about what's going to happen because the people are going to live through this. And, you know, this later invasion will not turn out like the first invasion. If you were living then and you read Daniel and you might say, you know, this is, it's going to be okay. We're going to make it through this. Um, A later campaign by Antiochus is going to result in a severe setback. Egypt is going to be helped by ships from Kittim. Kittim. The ships from Kittim will come against him and he will be humbled. Then he will turn and become furious against the Holy Covenant to take action. If I lose a battle in Sleepy Eye, I will take it out on the people of Cortland. That's politics, right? That's If I lose there, I'm going to win over here because maybe this other thing is an easier target and I have to rebuild my name. So, if I lose at A, I go win a victory at B. Um, He'll return and show favor to those who abandon the Holy Covenant. You know, Kittim is Cyprus and other coastlands of the northern Mediterranean. It includes things like Sicily over in Italy. And a lot of people um, see this now, especially, defeat of Antiochus by the Romans as the entrance of the Romans into biblical history. So, you've got Cyprus you've got Crete, you've got the islands all through Greece, you've got the Ionian Islands on the other side of Greece, you've got Sicily, you've got Corsica and Sardinia, you've got Malta, all of these are the islands. When in the Bible, here in Daniel or in Isaiah or the other prophets, it'll often talk about the people of the Kittim or the islands or the coastlands. And that's what we're talking about. All of these islands had excellent navies, because if you're an island, that's what you have. And so they were called in, but some of them were from the Roman area. And now these Romans, the Sicilians and so forth, they're going to walk in here and, uh, and be part of this with God's people. His forces will arise, profane the temple fortress, abolish the continual daily sacrifice, And set up the abominable thing that causes desolation. We have a couple minutes left. Is it okay if I just talk about this abomination and go through this? So, this was an altar to Zeus set up in the temple uh, of God in Jerusalem. And this would be the rebuilt temple that would be the temple of Zerubbabel. Okay, that's that temple. It's been rebuilt. And later on, you know, it's been desecrated and the Maccabees had to go in and retake it and all of that. And so what happens a little bit after this? Herod the Great will come in and say, you know what, let's let's redo this right. And Herod would add on to the temple for four decades and rebuild this edifice to something really spectacular. But in these times, it was still kind of a small little stone shack. Um, Not all that huge. Not like Solomon's masterpiece had been. Well, this abomination that causes desolation, um, the Hebrew phrase is shikutz shomeim, the abomination of desolation. But if you look at the word shomeim in Hebrew without the vowels, it looks identical to the word shamayim, which is the Hebrew word for heavens bara elohim et hashamayim the et haaretz in the beginning god created the shamayim the heavens and haaretz the earth so shamayim and Shomaim look the same in hebrew without the little vowel points what my grandma used to call chicken scratches when she would laugh at me for studying hebrew um, so shomem and shikutz is a word that gets used elsewhere in the bible like in first kings 11:5 for baal he is the abomination, the abominable thing. And shakutz would be a pretty good substitute for the name of any deity. So it seems like maybe Antiochus called his statue Baal Shemayam, the Baal of heaven. And the Jews just renamed it shakutz shomayim. Not the Baal of heaven, but the abominable thing of desolation. It's the way that they had to kind of turn things. And by the way, these are the very same Jews who take the name of Antiochus who wanted his nickname to be the same as his father's. His father had been Antiochus III Epiphanes, the splendorous, the glorious. They, the Jews who knew Greek took one letter of Epiphanes and changed it from a PH to an M and called him Epimenes, which means madman. So that's the kind of thing that they did. Um, and so it, it's been conjectured that this was the actual name that, that um, Antiochus called the, the altar, Baal Shemayim, and the Jews just called it Shikutz Shomim instead, but the abomination of desolation. And of course, who later talks about the abomination of desolation? Jesus. Jesus says, beware when you see the abomination of desolation in the temple know that on that day you should flee and we'll stop it here at verse 31 and we'll pick it up then there again uh, next time god bless you all you've been listening to invisible church the bible study podcast from saint paul's lutheran church new Wall, minnesota